0: Great to be with you all. If I haven't met you before, my name is Matt and uh, I was the lead pastor here at some point. Uh, And uh, graciously, uh, the elders allowed us to step out for a few months. So this is our first morning here since April. We got to step away for a full four months, Uh, and have a sabbatical as a family. And uh, we're back this morning. So we're uh, really excited to be here and we had a wonderful time during our sabbatical. Uh, September 1st was officially our first day back. That was two days ago and sort of started uh, easing into life uh, in the church again, and then last night, uh, I got a chance to meet with the elders and kind of hear from them how things have gone this summer, uh, and all the encouraging things that God has been doing uh, in and through and among you guys, and uh, at around 10 p.m. last night, they said, hey, our only plan for tomorrow is for you to share about your sabbatical experience. I said, okay, Uh, 12 hours from now, church, I'll, I'll share. Uh, and so that's the only plan for this morning um and yeah, I think over the last week or two uh have had people ask hey are, you, are wh- how's it been, and are you ready to come back and uh how are you feeling and i said i i uh i I don't know, I kind of feel like I forget, how to do, I forget what I did before. Like I, I forget a little bit how to be a pastor and how to teach. And what did I used to do uh, way back in, in April and before? And uh, some of you know Margie Brunner. She was actually um, staying at our house this weekend. And I think it was Friday night. We were all having dinner together. And she was asking some of those questions. Uh, and I was sharing some of those sentiments. And uh, sitting across the table from me is our eight-year-old Moses. And he just looked at me and said, Dad, you lost it. <laughs> and I said, whoa, he doesn't usually talk to me that way. And I thought, maybe, maybe I did. Maybe, maybe I've lost it. And this is like my new uh, fear that I'm now testing out as I re-enter. Have I lost it? Um, but I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic in this moment to all of you who are teachers and have the summer off. And some of you this Tuesday uh, are going to have your first classes Again, and you kind of have to remind yourself, oh, what, what was this? What, how do I do this? And how do I uh, relate to the students? And how did I teach before? Uh, and some of that will carry over, and some of that will be new. So the plan for this morning is is just to share about our sabbatical experience, and I think I'll do that in two kind of stages. Uh, the first is just describing what we did with that time that we were given, and then uh, after that, I'll kind of circle back around and try and articulate some of the things that the Lord did in us during that time. So first off, um, what we did, uh, we started our sabbatical May 1st, and pretty quickly I got to um, get away for a few days uh, up to Loon Lake by myself and just have some time in silence and solitude and try and create this clear um, kind of start uh, to the sabbatical time. And uh, that was really helpful. We had a couple weeks here at home Uh, where we got to do some fun stuff and celebrate Moses' birthday and some other things. And then uh, about three weeks into our sabbatical time, we left for a month and a half long road trip. So we went from here uh, and road tripped uh, all the way down kind of through the Rocky Mountains down to the Mexican border. And then uh, the kind of the central piece of the road trip was that uh, my buddy, Matt Karsh and I, uh, Matt Karsh and I co-planted this church years ago. Uh, Actually seven years ago today uh, was the day that we planted the church and Uh, He is living down in New Mexico now. So the one thing I thought, the one thing I really want to do during sabbatical, I'd never been to New Mexico. I want to go down to New Mexico and then bike pack uh, with Matt Karsh across the state of New Mexico from the Mexican border uh, up to the Colorado border. So I think there's a few pictures we can throw up along the way, but we had uh, a phenomenal time not only road tripping down there, um, but biking uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles across the deserts and, and mountains of uh, New Mexico. Uh, and eventually we did uh, complete our journey and make it up to the Colorado border. It was about two weeks of cycling and uh, we had a fantastic time. I feel like God really met us in that. Uh, it was one of, the, um, one of the hardest things I think I've ever done physically, uh, but really beautiful to just be out in the middle of nowhere um, and, you know, with Jesus and our bikes. And we uh, had a phenomenal time. So uh, after concluding that bike trip, we, uh, our family... Road tripped from uh, New Mexico back up through Utah and uh, Idaho, Boise, out to the Oregon coast and uh, eventually to Seattle and then back to Spokane. So we kind of spent a month and a half doing a big loop around the western United States and ended up back here uh, on July 7th. And uh, yeah, we had a, a really fantastic time. I think one of the goals of that time was to get out into uh, what I would call liminal space, uh, which is sort of a fancy way of saying in between space or new space. That's not the old routine that we had here, but it's not just being at home and resting, but getting out into new spaces and allowing God to uh, encounter us there. That, that basically sums up the sabbatical right there. Um, But we had a great time Uh, after arriving back home. We arrived back here in Spokane on July 7th. And from July 7th to today, which is almost two months, Uh, We were almost home the entire time, and we settled into uh, sort of the type of routine that we would have on the Sabbath day. So for years, my wife and I, our family has been practicing the Sabbath, uh, sometimes practicing it really well, sometimes not so well, uh, as is the case with so many practices from the way of Jesus but we'd been doing that, and the way that we decided to um, engage in Sabbaths, because we have young kids, uh, we found, hey, it's actually not that restful to just not work, but still have three little kids running around and screaming and hitting each other. This isn't like as restorative as I thought it would be. Uh, and so what we would have done for years with our Sabbath days is... We'll take turns. Like we all have a fun breakfast tomorrow and start the Sabbath day together. It actually starts Friday night, but uh, the day of on a Saturday, uh, we have a big breakfast together. And then usually my wife has a few hours to herself. We come back together again and have lunch. And then I have a few hours to myself. And then we all come back around 4 or 5 PM and have the evening together. Uh, And so that was sort of our blueprint for what a Sabbath day looks like. So most of July and August, we basically used that, copy-pasted that in. Uh, Of course, there's regular work that does need to get done. So it wasn't a true Sabbath day all the time, but we just sort of adopted that mentality. And so almost every day for the last two months, I had a couple hours to myself, and I would use that to cycle out through um, Riverside State Park and usually uh, kind of sit somewhere by the river and just be there. Um, Just spend time with Jesus in his presence and see what the Lord wanted to do. Uh, And so that is that kind of describes what we did during the sabbatical time, how we used that time. But I want to chat for a few minutes. Uh, about how that affected us and the ways that God uh, met us uh, in those places. Uh, And uh, one of the things that I think the Lord spoke to me uh, right off the bat as I started entering into times of silence and solitude and and sort of laying down, uh, there's a natural burden uh, that just comes with being human in the world and doing the things we need to do, but I think there's a, a unique type of burden that often comes with church leadership, uh, and that's actually not something to run from or to shun. It's something that I, I think is is there and is healthy, and you carry it. But over those first few weeks, uh, we really like we're we're trying to um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually lay that down. Hey, this is a season where we don't have to carry that burden. And we can just be uh, with Jesus and follow after him in, in a unique way. And one of the things that showed through in that time from the first couple times of entering into silence and solitude through those first few weeks was the reality that um, the, the, the role that fear was playing in um, who I was and, and what I was doing. And I think the Lord began to just show me in a way that I couldn't have seen if I was just in the regular rhythms of ministry. I would just think, oh, no, I'm doing this because I love you guys, and I love the church, and I love Jesus, and I love the kingdom of God. And that's true. Those were the primary motivators. But I think beneath that, almost subconsciously, there was this sort of simmering anxiety and fear that had crept in. And I think that I had slipped into a place of of believing uh, that the church was would you know survive or die based on how well I taught on any given Sunday. That it was all up to me. And it was sort of like my performance was going to directly uh, affect the life of the church. And so there was this um, sort of a bit of fear or anxiety in there. What if this doesn't go well? What if it exposes... Uh, my weakness. What if it exposes my inadequacy? What if uh, the you know the church falls apart because I'm not teaching in such and such a way or or whatever it was? And so, really quickly, the Lord began to show me that. And hey, this this fear and this anxiety, uh, it, it can act as a fuel and as a motivator, but it actually hasn't benefited you or benefited the church. Like that that actually hasn't been a helpful thing for you. And if anything, I think it was slowly leading toward uh, a place of burnout. Uh, and one of the really interesting ways the Lord was showing me this and it manifested is that uh, for the first few weeks of Sabbath, we're totally, uh, for the sabbatical, we were totally disengaged uh, and, and engaging with Jesus in a fresh way. But I started noticing that every Saturday night, all of a sudden, I would start to get anxious. And I could kind of feel my, my, my chest start to tighten up a little bit, and my adrenaline would start going, and my, I could feel my heart beating. And I thought, what's happening to me? Like, what's physically happening in my body right now? And I realized, oh, that's what's been happening every single Saturday night. Because Saturday night, you put the kids to bed, the Sabbath day ends, and you start thinking about Sunday morning and going back to your teaching and praying, and is everything set up, and is everything going to be... I, I'm a perfectionist, and that's not always helpful. Uh, and and so it took three or four Saturday nights uh, of the sabbatical before things like that started to kind of um, fall away. I realized, oh no, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to do that. I don't need to carry that. So that was one of the first things I feel like the Lord showed me. Uh, there's this, no matter how much. Um, we kind of tell ourselves, oh, you know, I'm not in control. You know, I'm, I'm surrendering that to God. I think we so easily slip back into thinking that we actually are in control. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, especially in the Western world, is to give up the desire and the illusion of control. Because you can you can manipulate everything. You can control everything. You can buy anything. You can, you, you, and we have this illusion that I should be able to control uh, any of the circumstances of my life. And we get really uncomfortable, at least in the Western world, when circumstances expose that we're not in control. Uh, and so the sabbatical, rather than being like a crisis moment that exposes that, was just a forced moment of like, I know we're not in control. We, there's nothing I can do, good or bad, in this season to help the church uh, in, in what it's doing. And so it just became abundantly clear. We are not in control in this season, but that helped us to see, in a broader sense, oh, wait, we never were. I just had to step back in order to actually like know that in a new way and in a fresh way. So there's issues of, I think, Um, control, and anxiety that the Lord sort of challenged and began to uproot, at at least in me, in my life. Uh, I think one of the beautiful things about the time uh, for me and my wife, and she wanted me to express how um, profoundly grateful she is as well for the time that we got to have. It was such a gift. I think one of the things that we got to do is to recenter on our identity in Christ and just come to a place of, of being a, a son and a daughter before the father. And when you're in ministry and leading stuff, it, again, it's not intentional, but it can bleed into your identity. This is who I am. I am a pastor. Uh, versus saying like, no, I'm, I'm a son. I, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and my identity is in that and being adopted in and the grace and the love uh, that has come to me through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. This is who I am. Uh, that is what I do. Uh, and, and being able to see that in a fresh way. So we had, I think a lot of um, moments, whether it was in the road trip or um, silence and solitude in the forest or whatever it was, we got real moments to just be with God, to just enjoy him. Just say, Lord, I don't have an agenda. I don't have a a list of ministry needs. I don't have that. No, I'm just going to be here with you uh, in this place. And that was uh, incredibly refreshing, I think, to have that. Um, As we went through sabbatical, uh, (laughs) it's sort of funny. This will expose a bit of my personality. In the months leading up to sabbatical I slowly started setting aside books that I wanted to read because I thought oh man during the sabbatical time I'm just gonna have all of this time and I'm gonna like cycle every day and I'm just gonna like read books like dozens and dozens of books so I I had these stacks actually originally I was gonna write a book and I had a sabbatical coach who's kind of like a counselor who was leading me up to to the um, prepping me for the process of sabbatical and I told him and he was like, no. You are not going to do that. That is not what a sabbatical is for. It's like, oh, okay, all right, I'm not going to write a book. I'll let it go. But at least I can read lots of books. And so I stacked all of these books up on my desk over the months leading up to sabbatical. And May 1st hit, and I found within myself zero desire to read. I mean, absolutely nothing. Like, I just, I tossed the books off the desk. I have no desire to read anything. Uh, and for the first two months, of, two and a half months of sabbatical, I basically didn't read anything. Uh, I just, um, the, the primary image that came to mind for me that the Lord kept challenging me with was, is, um, actually comes from Israel and the rhythms that God built into um, the, the Israeli society that was following after him. And they're an agrarian society. So basically everybody is working the land. Um, But built into the fabric of their society, there was meant to be this rhythm. God's intent, his heart, was that they would um, farm for six years and work the land and plant and harvest and all of that. But on the seventh year, for an entire year, they were not to work. They were to let the fields lie fallow, to just let them be and not do anything. And I want you to imagine, if you can, like, I'm a farmer, I work hard, I get up early, I, like, that is what I do, I work. And having that year start and just nothing. Here I am, I look out the window every day, there's a field, nothing's in it. You just let it lie. And every time I would, often I would reach, oh, I want to do this, or I want to listen to this podcast series, or I want to read this book, or I want to write this thing, and and I think the Lord continuously challenged me in that time. This is your moment to let the field lie fallow. Can you do that? Can, can you just let it lie? And if you can imagine yourself in ancient Israel doing that, uh, not only is it challenging, but when you look out your window, it looks as if nothing is happening. Not only is it a tremendous act of trust, but you look out the window, and you, there's, there's nothing going on here. And, and I feel like, at least not on the surface, there's no activity, there's no planting, there's no harvesting, there's, there's nothing. The only things that are happening are beneath the surface, and it's sort of hard to articulate what was happening in those fields. If I'm an ancient farmer, I'm like, I know something good is happening there, and, and that the years ahead will actually have a better crop because of this year that we're not working, but what's actually like the, the soil science and the ribosomes and the things that are like actually happening beneath the surface is hard to articulate. And that's kind of how I feel about the sabbatical time. You know, like, what did you do? We let the field lie fallow. Well, like what happened? I, I don't know. Like good stuff was happening beneath the surface that are a little bit difficult to articulate because it's precisely, and this is hard for us in the, in the Western world to say, there's, there's, there wasn't much to measure, if that makes sense. How many things did you plant? How much did you reap? How much did you, whatever. I, I can't really measure that. And yet we believe that God was working uh, and sense and feel Uh, And know that God was working beneath the surface, doing things that uh, sometimes are hard to articulate. Um, Something was happening there that was really important. And so in some sense, as we come back and officially kind of start today, one of the questions is like, was that a successful sabbatical? And I think the easy answer for my wife and I is like, yes, that like ticked all of our boxes that did what we had hoped and prayed it would do. But another part of me wants to answer by saying, we won't know that for another like six to nine months. Because the, it's going to show or it should show in what comes next. The year of letting the field lie fallow, what's going on? It's kind of ambiguous. How do I measure this? Will you really know that it was successful the following year when you start planting new things in soil that had a chance to reset? And then you see what takes root. And then you see, oh, what kind of fruit is being born now because you went through this discipline of resting and resetting? Uh, So there's a little bit of like, yes, an easy yes, that was an incredible time for us, an incredible sabbatical, and another sense of like, let's look back a year from now and see what type of fruit uh, has emerged, and then uh, we'll be able to see just how uh, successful that sabbatical was, although that's not necessarily helpful language. Uh, There's a line that came to mind from the Sabbath world, and there is a strong parallel between uh, Sabbath and sabbatical. Six days of work, one day of rest, six years of work, one year of rest. It's these rhythms that God uh, built into sort of uh, the, the fabric of creation. And uh, in in the I don't remember who said this. Uh, I've only it's only been 12 hours since I knew I was going to be sharing today, so I'm probably quote some people and have no idea who actually said these things. Uh, You can Google it, Uh, but somebody somewhere uh, once said, "People who Sabbath live all seven days differently." Uh, And I know this whole summer while I was gone, you were talking about practicing the way of Jesus. Sabbath is one of those practices that helps form us, bring us into union with Christ and form us into his image for the sake of his glory and the world. It's just one of many things. But those of you who have tried that practice and persevered in it, you will know that it's true. If you know how to come to a stop for 24 hours to trust in God, And delight in him and allow him to speak to you and restore you 24 hours every week. The other days are just different. You don't re-enter again with the same speed and the same attitudes and the same stuff that was going on beforehand. And so the longer you Sabbath, the more it starts to um, kind of spill over and touch and transform who you are and the way you live your life and the pace at which you live and the things that you value. And, and, and am I abiding in the Lord uh, or not? And I hope our prayer in this moment uh, is that the same would be true of sabbatical. I hope it can be said, people who sabbatical uh, live the next six years differently because of what happened, because of the way the Lord worked uh, in our lives. Uh, and then the last thing that I would share is uh, just uh, a few thoughts on the practice of silence and solitude. Because uh, for us and for me in particular, that really marked this time uh, in a unique way. And when we left for sabbatical, uh, our, the final teaching that I gave was sort of a, a soft start, to the Practicing the Way of Jesus uh, series that you've been in all summer. Uh, And I think that uh, today is sort of acting like a a soft ending, I guess, to that series before we jump into something new next week. So uh, for us, uh, silence and solitude really marked that time. It's interesting this morning uh, coming back into community there were only a few, maybe three times, three Sundays during that entire four months that we got out and um, visited another church and, and had a chance to worship with followers of Jesus. So for most of the four months, uh, we've just, there's been a lot of silence and solitude and seeking the Lord either as individuals or as a family. Uh, and so even just coming back in this morning, I'm just reminded of uh, the beauty and power of community. And I feel like I have maybe fresh eyes to see that of like, oh my gosh, there are things that the Lord wants to do in your life that he uh, will only do in silence and solitude. And we'll talk about that in a second. But just as importantly, there are things the Lord will do in your life that he can only do in community. And that's worth saying in our, our hyper individualistic Western world that like we need each other. We need community just to like worship together this morning with you guys was like doing something in my heart that's different than anything that's happened in the last four months. So holding those things in tension in this dance as we follow after Jesus. Um, Meaningful community, not shallow community, but meaningful community where you can go deep and be authentic and be yourself. And then uh, what I want to mention here, which is uh, silence and solitude. So this was a First off, you have to know uh, I'm I'm very introverted. Uh, every personality test I've ever taken on that is like, oh, hi, introvert. And I, I just know that about myself. I'm very introverted. I naturally love time alone. I naturally have uh, a bias toward silence and solitude as one of my favorite practices. Um, so I'm confessing my bias up front uh, if I had been born you know, uh, 1,500 years ago and had never met my wife, uh, I'm pretty sure I would have been one of those like desert monks uh, who just like comes into town once every two years and like preaches a wild sermon and then just goes back out to the desert uh, just to be with Jesus. I, that's one of the things I learned about myself in sabbatical. I was like, I think I could just do this like for a living. Uh, I don't know how they made a living actually, but they did it. Um, so I have a bias uh, toward that. Uh, but despite my bias, um, I do think that silence and solitude as one of the things that Jesus did in his life is actually one of the most radical, one of the most difficult uh, and one of the most important practices that we can adopt as we follow after Jesus is we say, you are the master, I am the apprentice, I want to walk in your way and become like you. I think in the Western world, silence and solitude uh, is perhaps the most difficult uh, and maybe Uh, arguably the most necessary Uh, and I won't go into a long tirade against uh, all the forces that fight against our going into silence and solitude, all of our noise, all of our busyness, all of our distraction, all of these things that clamor for our attention and pull us in and seek to sort of fill every little crack and void and moments of our lives. Uh, We it is, it is an uphill battle to get into a place where uh, the world around you is silence, where you're alone, um, and, and you're moving toward a place of, of sort of inner silence before the Lord. Uh, and I think there were probably only two or three days out of the last four months that I didn't get a chance to practice silence and solitude. Uh, in some form. So uh, that's that's been very fresh on my mind. But in silence and solitude, you go to a place where you're alone uh, as as much as possible. You get into a place that's silent as much as possible. Even if you're using a worship song or something like that to help enter into that time, that eventually that stops and there's just um, silence before the Lord. So I think in uh, meaningful silence and solitude, in my opinion, we come before the Lord and we just sit with him. No podcasts, no worship music, no like, constant Bible reading. Even that can, we can use to sort of hide behind sometimes but we just sit in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Another quote that you can uh, Google, because I don't know who said this, uh, but somebody once said that all of humanity's problems uh, come from our inability to sit in a quiet room alone. And it sounds so simple, and yet it can be so difficult. I think it requires a unique type of courage to sit silently before the Lord, no agenda, no distraction, and just see what happens. And typically for me, uh, the first couple of minutes are pretty scattered because it's really hard to shut off your thinking and quiet your mind and your heart. But eventually as you come to that place and you sit there before the Lord and slowly grow in your awareness, oh, the Lord is here. I'm I'm beginning to open up to his presence. Typically what happens in the first couple sessions, the first couple days, first couple hours that you practice silence and solitude, I think are the most difficult. But what you'll find, especially early in the journey, is that what comes to the surface as you're sitting in silence and solitude are not things that we like. Usually what comes to the surface is things that we've been pushing down or suppressing or ignoring and that we simply wish were not there. Lord, I feel anxious. I feel angry. I feel fearful. I feel like this is silly. I am doubting your existence right now. I have issues with, with my faith. I, wh- whatever it is, there's things that we wish did not exist, but th- Silence and solitude is meant to be the place where those things come uncomfortably to the surface, and we bring them before the Lord. This is the place where we can uh, just most easily confess things before the Lord and say, "Lord, I know I'm supposed to be X, y, or Z. I feel like I'm supposed to be happy and healthy and smiling, but what I actually feel is a restlessness. What I actually feel is an anger. What I actually feel. Is that I I think I have issues with you and my faith because of the scars that I that I got in my childhood that I've never fully talked about, that I've never really dealt with, that I've never really healed through in your presence. And then you just sit there with the Lord. It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, for those of you who know kind of the, the cry of the Old Testament prophets, there was, there was often this sort of like the Lord saying, who, whom shall I send? Who shall I raise up and send to the nations? And, and the, the classic reply of the, of the pure-hearted prophet was, Lord, here I am, send me. In silence and solitude, we're doing a similar thing But we're saying, Lord, here I am, (laughs) period. Here I am in my true humanity. And I will say the things I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. And I will feel the things I'm not sure if I'm allowed to feel and allow you, invite you into that journey. I'm going to come as I actually am. Here's my anger. Here's my addiction. Here's my uh, confusion, my pain, my doubt, my disillusionment that I continually stuff week after week it's because I feel this pressure to be a happy Christian or whatever it is. We, we come with brutal honesty as we actually are. Um, And I think one of the hardest things, yeah, because everything I've said so far is pretty easy, right? Uh, But one of the hardest things for me was recognizing that when my times of silence and solitude ended, there wasn't always, sometimes there was this sense I would walk out and feel this fresh sense of peace, this fresh sense of lightness. But other times I wouldn't. There are times when you're working through that stuff in your soul before Jesus where you will walk away from those times feeling worse than you did when you went into those times because you started wading into something and unpacking something and allowing the gospel to touch and transform something that, that for, for lack of a better word, we just feel is ugly. We don't want to go there. We, mentally, emotionally, we run from those places And yet those are the places that God wants to meet with us. Uh, But just like that stuff happening beneath the soil in the farm field as it lies fallow, I think in my experience of silence and solitude, I can say with confidence that the Lord is always working in those times. And in the same breath, I can almost never articulate what the Lord is doing. And this is another reason in a performance-driven culture that we have such a hard time with silence and solitude. If I read my Bible for five minutes in the morning, which, we sh- which you should do, please. There's something you will get out of scripture reading that you could never get out of silence and solitude or never get out of fasting or any of the other things. We need them all. But, but there's a sense in which I can read the Bible for five minutes in the morning, and you can say, hey, what did you get out of that? I'd say, oh, it was, this, it was this, uh, this image from Ephesians of just being chosen, like God knew me before the foundation of the world. And now I'm going to go work, you know, nine or ten hours in my accounting firm, but I have, I'm carrying with me this beauty, this knowledge of the gospel. I'm chosen by God. He knew me before he created me. I, I'm destined to be in his kingdom. You can't really do that with silence and solitude. So you don't want to go there, and then you go in, and it's painful, and sometimes you come out, and it's painful, and someone can, can ask you, well, how was it? It was awful. Well, what happened there? I don't know. Well, you, what, was it helpful? I don't know. Well, are you going to do it again tomorrow? But probably not. Like... The- it's, it's really hard. I'm trying to, to sell you the hardest practice of all of the practices from the life of Jesus because it's just not, what, what, are, you even, what are you doing here? Satan comes along. What are, you, what are you doing here, Evan? You got two little kids at home. I'm sure Leah's over. It. What are you doing here out in the forest? I don't know. <laughs> it's something that we, you have to fight for and fight through. Uh, One of my my favorite quotes on this topic, and I know who it's from, is from uh, a woman named Ruth Haley Barton, who I think is just sort of this master of like allowing Jesus into the interior architecture of your life. Ruth Haley Barton says this, she says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. And if you've been following Jesus for more than I don't know, a couple months uh, or a couple years, I think the longer you follow Jesus, the, the harder this quote hits. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Because in the beginning, God's typically dealing with really big, obvious stuff that as soon as you recognize there is a God and Jesus is real, you almost immediately realize, oh gosh, there's all this stuff in my life that just that just has to go. Um, in, in fact, this this uh, this journey with Jesus uh, was was called in the uh, in church history, it was called purgation, uh, which sounds very ominous uh, in my mind. Uh, but there was these different. It was recognized that God uh, typically, not in a linear fashion, but God typically deals with his followers. In, in a certain way, addressing different levels of sin. Uh, so if you go to the next slide, uh, this, these were, in church history, sort of the, the stages of purgation. First, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are dealing with what we would call um, major sins, or what in church history they called gross sins, but not like Gross, icky. Oh, that's really that's really gross. Gross is in like large and obvious. Uh, Different meaning of that word. So first, as as we encounter God and begin following after Him, He deals with what we would call major sin. So there's an example here in uh, Galatians chapter five where He's contrasting the acts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit with the acts of the flesh and the power of the flesh. And He says uh, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, uh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, uh, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are things that would be considered like, Hey, when I came to Jesus and I don't have time to share my story, but many of us in the room could share our stories. When I first came to Jesus, I was in this lifestyle. There was all of this stuff going on. And I came to Jesus and within days, within weeks, he was ripping out these big, obvious things. The Holy Spirit came in and just, boom, I'm just going to blow this right out of the building. And it was done in a matter of days. Not only is it the biggest and the most obvious, but they're usually the first to go and the fastest. They can have such a grip on us. They can wield such power. But as we come into the kingdom, we often see them broken rather quickly. And uh, that the first stage of major sin, those are what make the best uh, testimonies, I think, at least within our church culture. You say like, oh, I, you know, I was addicted to heroin and I was on the street and I, you know, encountered Jesus through the street evangelist and the Holy Spirit fell on me and boom, my addiction was broken. 15 years and it just broke in a moment as I was filled with the Spirit or or whatever it is. Um, The uh, next level down is uh, what we would call conscious sins. And these are often things that we're doing on purpose. We do them intentionally, but they're a little more um, culturally acceptable. So, uh, gosh, it was maybe two weeks before we left for sabbatical. uh, I gave a handout about um, the stages of discipleship and uh, actually did a little section in there on this. And so, uh, I'm just going to read a bit from this, but first, God's removing the major sins. Gal- Galatians chapter five being one example of these uh, big, obvious things that we're enslaved to—external things that anyone can see. Uh, then, next is is what's called conscious sins. So these are things that are socially acceptable in society and in the ways of the world. We're like, hey, it's not really a big deal. This is just kind of what we do, but. As we draw closer to Jesus, we realize, oh, these are actually discordant with Jesus and his way. Uh, it could be uh, the culture's sex ethic. It could be um, a sort of the secular view on uh, marriage and dating and divorce and those types of uh, relational things. It could be the culture's view of violence and the role that violence should play uh, in our lives and and the conquest of others. Uh, It could be um, sort of the the rampant consumerism that is uh, offered to us in secular culture, or even I think maybe um, an easier example that's more relatable to us could be uh, watching or streaming shows that everybody in the culture would watch and talk about, but then in reality are discordant with the way of Jesus. So everybody's super excited about Game of Thrones or whatever it is. But if you're real obvious and you hold it up to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom of God, you're like, ah, this doesn't really, I think I just sort of inherited this from the world. This doesn't really flow with the way of Jesus. So I'm choosing to do it, but they're not the like giant, big, crazy things that you would see in Galatians chapter five. Make sense? Uh, so then typically, uh, after dealing with major sin, then Jesus will move on to sort of patterns that we uh, inherited from the culture. And then in, uh, in step three, and again, it's, it's not always super linear, but as God digs deeper into our lives and we've rooted out some of those other sin issues, uh, he'll deal with unconscious sin. Uh, and unconscious sin is sort of, um, uh, like our, some of our inner attitudes and heart posture and uh, ways of life that are still not in line with him. And the thing is, the deeper you go down this list, the longer it takes to change things. So the biggest, darkest, most obvious things are often the quickest to change. By the time you get down to three, and I'll talk in a minute about four, it takes a really long time. You follow Jesus for years. You bring yourself before him for years. And we can often get discouraged because we're thinking, how did I give up drunkenness in a day? And yet these deeper things of like pride and envy and fear and like these things I see in myself that I don't like and, and and are naturally antagonistic toward the kingdom of God. And yet, I can't shake them. Have you ever felt that? Like, Lord, I'm bringing this before you. Oh, I'm exhausted. I'm bringing this before you. Oh, I'm exhausted. I'm bringing this before you. It's not changing. Why can't I just like get knocked out by the Holy Spirit and just have it just broken in a moment? It requires a different type of fortitude and patience and perseverance that the earlier steps uh, didn't, didn't take. And to make matters worse, it's not nearly as exciting to talk about right? We love talking about how God came in and overthrew this major sin or this obvious thing. But, but we, we need to learn to do in the church is to celebrate the person who stands up and says, I have wrestled with envy for 15 years, for 20 years. I've always been envious of others. But over these last, you know, five years, God's really begun working in my heart. And I didn't even notice the change, but he's reminded me today that I, I, I'm no longer dominated by envy. Like he has slowly purged that from me and from my character. We we have to be able to celebrate those because they're just as important and they took a lot more work than just shedding the big, obvious things. And then when you get down to uh, the bottom, I think it's the toughest things to change within us that take the longest time are what we would call trust structures, Uh, the deep-seated attitudes and inner orientation of our being out of which our behavior flows. It's not targeting behavior. It's much deeper than that. The deep inner postures that still don't rely on God, but rely on ourselves for well being. So, what do I do when pain comes? What do I do uh, when I lose something? There's often a deeper trust structure or sort of idolatry that's like in the foundation of our lives that we won't even really know is there, apart from things like silence and solitude or losing your idol you don't really know what you're trusting in until that thing is stripped from you. Your friend moves away, your child dies, your spouse walks out, your whatever it is. And, you, and all of those things should be naturally um, painful and jarring to us. But in the process, we, it can often expose, oh my gosh, I wasn't really trusting in Jesus. I was trusting in myself. I was trusting in my spouse. I was trusting in my family. I was trusting in whatever, whatever it is. So working out those deeper uh, trust structure things takes time. And honestly, uh, for me, I, I think a lot of what God is doing in silence and solitude is working on, on numbers three and four. Like, honestly, I've been following Jesus for, I don't know, oh, 20 years or something like that. And by his grace, a lot of the ones and twos have been uh, rooted out over time by his power, by his grace. So if you were to, like, film me 24-7 and you were to watch those videotapes and just track my every movement, you wouldn't really see things. You wouldn't be shocked by anything. I I can honestly say there's like nothing that I'm, that I'm doing. Maybe some of my words are, are uh, less than admirable. uh, But really you, you you wouldn't say, Oh my gosh, there's a scandal. Can you believe Matt does this? Can you believe he, you know, steals kittens or whatever? Like there's no, there's no, like uh, there's no, obvious. you couldn't see anything. And yet I know as I come before God, like, Lord, wo- like, woe is me. I am an unclean <laughs> person from an unclean people. Lord, would you please like rend and tear up and fix the deep trust structures within my heart? Be- because I, it's still there. It's like the, this deep work that needs to happen in those places. And for me, and I think many others, those are some of the the uh, unseen, almost unconscious, deeper work that God can do in silence and solitude that are really hard for us to articulate as we journey after him. Uh, those threes and fours are what I would describe, and I experience this in sabbatical, as these sort of tectonic shifts that happen with things beneath the surface in your soul. Think about tectonic plates. Like How fast does a continent move from one place to another? I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's the speed that your fingernails grow. That's slow. Above all, trust in the slow work of God that as I come before you again and again, at the pace that my fingernails grow, this giant thing that is not of you is slowly shifting out of my heart so that I can be freed up To operate more fully in the kingdom of God. Uh, So that was a little word on the practice of uh, silence and solitude. And I don't, I lost it. I don't remember how to teach. I don't know how long I've been teaching. Uh, I think it's time for worship now. uh, So the worship team can come back up. Uh, As you do, um, just a few questions that I want to pose for us to think about. Um, I, I'll, I'll get better, I promise, as, as we go here. Uh, just a few things to think about as we close. Uh, first off, thank you so much for the time that you've given us. Uh, I, I promise that it was a meaningful time, that it was not wasted, uh, and I got to, um, you know, come back. I think the deeper fear is like, oh my gosh, if we leave for that many months, the church is going to fall apart, uh, and it's not going to exist anymore. And uh, I was... Maybe a week or two ago, for the first time in those four months, I had to drive down uh, this street, Indiana, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but I didn't allow myself to look at the building because I was like, I still have ten days of sabbatical left, and if I look over and there's just a giant hole in the ground, it's going to just ruin my last my last ten days. So there was this, you know, uh, unfounded fear that like, y- you know, it'll go up in flames, there'll be nothing there. Um, Thankfully, the church still exists, and you guys are doing great. Uh, My church email does not exist. Just as a side note, uh, it died, uh, and I do not have any access to any of the emails that you might have sent me over the last four months. Uh, So if it was important, just tell me in person. Uh, It's all gone, Uh, which is kind of nice, actually. Um, Anyhow, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, We're really grateful for this time as we share Hey, not everybody gets a chance to take a sabbatical, but we all have opportunities to go into silence and solitude. So, two questions to contemplate as we close. The first one is this: How did I word it? Uh, what would it look like to practice silence and solitude for you? There's no guilt. There is no shame. This, this is—you're not in sin if you don't practice silence and solitude. It is an invitation. To go deeper and allow jesus to transform your character for his glory so often we can be into the action lord i want to go out i want to do things i want to go to new nations i want to tell my neighbors about you and and we do we are called to go and to do, and to, to partner with jesus and seeing the lost people of our world saved but in the process saying i want you to be transformed into my image And I don't think there's anything quite as difficult or quite as radical as this, but that's the invitation of Jesus, to go to sit in the ambiguity and sometimes in the pain before your savior and see what happens along the way. Uh, Everyone's in a different stage of life. Some of you are empty nesters. Some of you are teenagers uh, or younger. Uh, Some of you are new moms. Uh, or single moms, and you just think, how on earth am I going to do this? Uh, just just bring it before the Lord. Say, Lord, where can I find five minutes? Where can I find 15 minutes? Before I go to work in the morning, uh, stopping at a park on my way home from work, after the kids go to bed, I'm exhausted, Lord, but but you know what? For 10 minutes, I can sit. I can be with you. What, you have to work it out in your context. There is no one-size-fits-all Um, And as you're contemplating that, I think it's really helpful to just be honest and say, what's holding me back? There are external circumstances, of course. The the baby who's crying, the the late work hours, the homework that's overdue, the whatever it is, there are external things. But I think what actually holds us back from silence and solitude is the internal stuff. And, And maybe for a lot of us, it's just the fear of like, I don't know how to do this. And I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. We all experience the fear. And, and I think we can all learn to embrace that. So I'm not, not going to let that fear and uncertainty hold me back. I'm, I'm going to go for this or whatever it is. Cut my hours on Instagram or do whatever you need to do. What is it that's holding me back from doing that? Um, and so you can you can think about that. You can journal on that as we head into worship. Hey, what's this going to look like for me? And I think a partner question that um, perhaps was raised in this teaching uh, is this. The second question uh, is just coming before the Lord and saying, God, what's one thing you're wanting to work out in my life right now? Could be a level one issue. I have this, this crazy obvious addiction or something that I'm in bondage to. Uh, it, or it could be a level three issue. I, ha- I have this pride, Lord. I just feel like I'm better than other people. And it, and it alienates me from them. And it, it subtly poisons my relationships. But I don't know how to stop thinking that way. That's, I, Lord, would you come? Would you start touching? Would you start working? Would you start healing? Lord, I, I just want to trust you more. I don't want my trust to be split into six different things, most of which are all Bound to fade, Lord, bring, bring my, draw my trust up into you. So we'll take a moment and just um, contemplate these things, and even as we worship and as we go from this place, we'll contemplate those things. Do we have people to pray? Okay. Uh, as we're worshiping, there's going to be some people over on the side of the room. Um, we can't properly practice silence and solitude right this moment but we can pray for each other and we can bring the one thing um, together with other brothers and sisters and lift it up in prayer. So you can pray, we can worship. um, Let's do that now. I'll I'll pray for us. Jesus, we uh, thank you for your goodness, Lord, that no matter how far we run, uh, that in Peter's case, no matter how much we deny you, Uh, that no matter how much we get uh, mixed up in the things of this world, you are the good shepherd who comes for us.